As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello, everyone. Brittany Matthews is a Texas girl living in a Chicago world with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Communication Disorders from the University of Houston. She learned she had type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy at the age of 19 after more than 12 years of struggling with mysterious symptoms. Now, as a trained speaker with Project Sleep's Rising Voices of Narcolepsy program, Brittany shares her story to healthcare professionals and the general public to shed light on the reality of living with this challenging and misunderstood condition. So with that, Brittany, please take it away. All right. Well, I am from a small town in Deer Park. Um, it's an industrial city. It has a really bad odor to it. If you're driving through, you know exactly where you're at. As a kid, I was a pretty normal, I did normal things. Um, I liked to ride my bike around the neighborhood. I did competitive cheerleading and I was the youngest of three girls. And my absolute favorite thing to do, you know, growing up was to make MySpace videos with my best friends. And we would just stay up all night doing it and then posting it and seeing the responses that people would give our funny videos. So my symptoms began at a, yep, at a very young age, probably around kindergarten. I would have a lot of trouble staying asleep at night. And I remember, actually, I had two beds, <clears throat> two twin-size beds in my room. And I would lay in one for hours and hours and hours, just staring at the ceiling, wondering why I couldn't fall asleep. And then I, at some point, I would be like, maybe if I just moved to the other bed, I'd be able to sleep better. And so I switched to the other bed and I'd lay there for a while and I'd be like, hmm, still can't sleep. So I would go to the living room and I'd try to sleep on the couch. And when that didn't work, I would just completely give up. And I would actually go sit in the hallway on the floor and end up reading books all night until the sun came up. And that was pretty normal for me. And then when the sun would come up, I would still be so tired that I would end up sleeping in and nobody really thought much about it in my family because, you know, as you grow up, you tend to want to sleep in more. And as you're hitting puberty and you're in these different age groups, it's kind of normal to 
want to sleep for longer periods of time. I started becoming really desperate for naps, like around fourth grade. I would come home from school after a full day, and the second my body would hit my couch, I would just sleep until it was almost time to get ready for bed to go to sleep at night. And it would get so bad that I just never got around to doing my homework, but I always figured it would be okay. You know, I was a good student and I managed to get by in my classes. So I would sometimes do my homework at the lunch table right before my class, or I would, you know, every once in a while, just use my friend's homework to sort of guide me to make sure that I was able to keep my grades up in elementary and junior high. And then I started noticing a weird symptom where I would be so tired by the end of the school day that I would actually act out and be delirious. Like I was like a drunken 13 year old rolling around in my pre-algebra class um, classroom floor searching for an eraser or something like that. And all my friends thought it was funny. I kind of started getting labeled like a class clown type because I would do these abnormal things and just like laugh manically. But looking back, it was very odd behavior. And then I went from being delirious in school and needing lots of naps and sleeping late to it actually being considered a victory just for me to make it to school in the first place. There were several days out of the week that I would end up missing school. And I actually, in high school, ended up having to go to truancy court, which is a court you have to go to basically because you have missed too much school. You have too many unexcused absences. So your parent has to go to court with you to make sure that you're still eligible to graduate and you're not going to be punished for missing so much school. And so one time I was actually getting ready for school. And I remember I was sitting in front of my mirror and I was doing my makeup. I was in 10th grade, I believe at this time. And, you know, I was just getting ready for school. Then I started walking out the door, and then I end up going to school, and I was about halfway through my school day, when all of a sudden I woke up to my mom screaming at me, because it was 1 p.m., and I was on my bedroom floor, and I was confused at first, because the last thing I knew, I was at school, but then I realized all of a sudden, wait a minute, I'm in the same spot I was at 7 a.m. this morning, still on my floor, doing my makeup in my mirror, and my mom is coming home for her lunch break and yelling at me. And so it was hard to make sense of it, but I just thought, you know, it's a very intense dream. I must have been so tired that I just fell asleep doing my makeup, and I dreamt that I was at school. And things like this started to happen a lot. Um, I started to hear strange sounds as well. And one night I was sleeping, getting ready for school or sleeping to go to school the next day. And before I woke up, I started hearing these loud boom sounds right outside of my bedroom window. 
And I remember being so afraid. I actually had to go to my mom's bedroom. I got out of bed, went to my mom's bedroom, brought her back to my bedroom and forced her to lay in bed with me because there were bombs going off outside of my bedroom. And she kept telling me, Brittany, nothing is going off out there. Like I could sleep in my own bed, but I insisted that she laid there with me in my bed because these bombs going off were so terrifying. So at this point, both of my parents were pretty frustrated because clearly I had some sort of problem making it to school. So I actually ended up moving in with, with my dad in high school. And around this time, I started having strange things happen where, you know, I'd be running low, low on gas. And before I would get gas, I would actually break down from running out of gas. And I would remember being so persistent that if I could just keep going, if I could just keep chugging along, I'll be able to make it to my bed. And that was the most important thing for me was if I can just get there, I can go to bed. It's okay. I only have a quarter of a tank. I, I'm almost there. And so, so many times I ran out of gas. And when a family member would come to actually give me gas so I could finish getting to wherever I was going, they would have to knock on my car window on the shoulder of a highway to wake me up because I was actually sleeping while waiting for them to come bring me the gas I needed. And then one day, I was at a concert with all my friends. And you know how concerts are. They're super packed, especially whenever you're close to the stage. You always want to be so close that you can feel the spit of whoever the artist is. And that was sort of what my, my friend group always had to be, the first row. So it's super packed. We're shoulder to shoulder. Everyone's sweating, bumping into each other. And out of nowhere, I just collapsed to the floor. And I could hear everyone around me wondering what had happened. And I could physically feel my friends like touching me and trying to pick me up. And then all of a sudden I heard the EMTs come up. And so there's a, they make a space around me and the EMTs do something that is called the sternal rub. And they dig into your sternum to try to wake you up from whatever it is. If you're just passed out, you typically wake up from that because it's so painful. It's hard to sleep through it. And I didn't wake up, so they continued to do it for what felt, it was probably about, I, I have to say it was probably about three minutes, because how long can you actually do that for? But it felt like half an hour. It felt like forever, because it was so painful. And I remember on the inside, I was screaming, please stop, like, I'm right here, I can hear you, I can feel you, and that hurts, but they couldn't hear me and no words could escape. And then eventually I just, I was able to open my eyes. And then when, once my eyes opened and they saw that my eyes opened, slowly I started being able to move my body again. And they tried to take me on the ambulance to the hospital. And I actually, I was a very stubborn young person. And I told them I didn't want to go to the hospital. And actually, I told them, things like this tend to happen with me. 
this is you this is just another Britney thing you know I just I do things like this sometimes and actually when I was a young child I was diagnosed with hypoglycemia because I would have these kind of unexplained episodes where I would just sort of collapse. So I actually signed a release for them not to take me to the hospital because I said, don't worry, it's just my hypoglycemia acting up again. So at this point, things started to go from, oh, that's a Britney thing to kind of like, oh, something might be wrong with Britney. And at this point, I started getting very, very depressed because leading up to this, you know, I see, I felt pretty, I felt like I was just like everybody else. I thought maybe everyone sort of has these things happen to them. But by the time I had been in high school for a while, I started to realize that most people are achieving a lot more and I'm a smart person and I have a lot going for me but for some reason no matter how hard I try I can't live up to what everyone else is doing around me and so my friends would actually be really worried about me I would miss school for a few days and they would knock on my bedroom window and I would open my bedroom window and they'd be like, Brittany, you haven't been at school in a week. Are you okay? And, you know, people like to say like teenagers like to skip school and things like that. But I wanted to be at school. I so desperately wanted to be doing what all my friends were doing. And I remember the guilt that used to eat at me when I would open the window and I tell them, oh, yeah, I miss school again. And they would make it sort of a joke about it. Brittany's always missing school, you know, but I was really lonely and I wanted to be surrounded by my friends at school every day. And I wanted to make A's on my homework. And, you know, I wanted to apply to college someday, but maybe I started to think that wasn't an option for me. Maybe I'm just not built that way. So I ended up having to take some online classes to be able to graduate. And then once I did, I, I kind of came to two that, you know, maybe I can't go to college because I didn't show up enough in high school to be able to get a scholarship or anything like that. So maybe, I'll, I'll, you know what, I'm really good at hair and makeup and I like talking to people. So I'm going to get my cosmetology degree. I could probably do that. So I went to cosmetology school. It was a two and a half year program, I believe. And after four or five years, I think, I think it was five years, I graduated from cosmetology school, which should have, again, taken me two years. And I started to struggle doing that too. I couldn't wake up to go to my job. I couldn't, I barely even graduated cosmetology school because I couldn't make it there either. So I was pretty depressed. I started seeing a psychiatrist who began um, prescribing me with a multiple or a multitude of different things. I think I was diagnosed at one point with schizophrenia. I was diagnosed at one point with bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed at one point. I mean, you name it. I, there was a brief period in time when I was diagnosed with it while she tried to figure everything out for me. And you know, I started to get frustrated. And I remember telling her, 
I think the reason why I sleep so much, I think, or I think I'm depressed because I sleep so much. I, and she kept telling me, no, I think the reason why you sleep so much is because you're depressed. And it's just, that didn't, I mean, I understood that happens with people, but for me, I felt the opposite. I, I mean, I was ambitious on the inside. I wanted to do things. I, I had a plan in my head and I was very adamant about doing it. I just couldn't make myself. And I would always end up sleeping through, you know, the most important chapters of my life. And that made me really upset. So finally, after months of having this conversation with this lady, she finally agreed to send me to a sleep study and the rest was history. And I remember my sleep doctor telling me on my first visit, he said, huh, you have restless leg syndrome. Very interesting. First thing he ever said to me. The next time I saw him to get the results, he said, Brittany, you are a narcoleptic through and through and through. And I was like, it was like, like the heavens opened up and I was like, it's not me. So I ended up finding out, of course, I have narcolepsy and narcolepsy is a chronic neurological disorder of the sleep-wake cycle that infects about one in 2000 people. Some symptoms of my narcolepsy were very shocking to me once I learned what they were. And I argued for a while that I didn't have any of these. So the first one is excessive daytime sleepiness. And this is probably the only one I believed in the beginning, because this explained me driving for miles and miles when my gas gauge was on zero and running out of gas and then having to sleep there on the shoulder of the highway because I was so excited to get home to my bed. This is the reason why I missed so much school. I just couldn't even wake up to get there. And then there was the cataplexy. And I actually, after my diagnosis, I said, I, I, there's no way I have this. And then a few months later, it started clicking. The incident at the concert, that was cataplexy. Cataplexy is a, so whenever you are dreaming, you have, there's a part of your brain that triggers your body to go paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams because that's dangerous. That is actually why sleepwalking is considered dangerous because you're not supposed to be doing physical things when you're supposed to be sleeping. So in someone who has cataplexy, that gets triggered when you're fully conscious. So you can be walking down the street and then you feel a strong emotion and you're triggered to go paralyzed. And it can be as drastic as a full body drop like I had at the concert, or it could just be your head slackening or your jaw slackening, or sometimes it's hard to open your eyes. And there was a lot of other times I realized I had that too. And guess what? I never had hypoglycemia. That was cataplexy all along. Then there's the hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. And this is why my mom thought I was crazy when I heard bombs going off outside of my window. Those bombs, she's right, they didn't exist. But in my head, in my mind, you could not tell me there were not bombs going off outside my window. I could feel the room shake and I could hear, I mean, I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. 
I just imagine bombs going off right outside your window. And this is also why whenever I would fall asleep in high school, I would think I was actually at school. And then I'd wake up and realize I'm not at school at all. I've been at home this whole time sleeping on my floor. It was just so realistic to me. And then there's sleep paralysis. And this goes along most of the time with the hypnopompic and hypnopopic and hypnagogic hallucinations. And that's where upon waking up or falling asleep, your body is completely paralyzed and you can't move. And it can be weird. Sometimes you feel your body moving almost like you're floating in water, but you can't pull yourself out of it. It's a very, very strange phenomenon. And it's terrifying to not be able to jerk yourself out of it. And then of course, the disrupted nighttime sleep, which made so much sense to me when I thought back to my childhood and how I used to go from one bed to the next, hoping maybe if I just switch beds, I'll be able to sleep. And then once that didn't work, I'd go to the couch or to the bookshelf. And then eventually the sun would come up and I never slept at all. So, and then there's type one and type two narcolepsy. I have type one narcolepsy and that is narcolepsy with cataplexy. Type two narcolepsy, there's less known about it, but those individuals um, do not seem to have cataplexy. So um, my diagnosis involved a polysomnogram and a, multi, a multiple sleep latency test, which is called an MSLT if you want to shorten it up. And it's where they basically attach a million little electrodes on your scalp and put all this equipment on you. And then they say, hey, here's a fun thing we can try. Go to sleep. And you're expected to do it comfortably. Remember, I had disrupted nighttime sleep at this point. So try falling asleep with all of this equipment on and like glue in your hair. It was not a fun time. So treatment for narcolepsy includes wake promoters or stimulants for daytime sleepiness. And I mean, those aren't always fun to take, but it's in my situation, something that I found to be very helpful, even though I don't necessarily like the way I feel on them at all, but it does help me stay awake. There's nighttime medication that I take. I wake up in the middle of the night every night and I take a dose of medication because there's not just one dose that you can take per night right this second. I have to take two. They are working on something like that, but and then there's antidepressants for cataplexy, and those do help minimize the cataplexy. I always say minimize because I don't think my cataplexy will ever be erased completely. Wouldn't that be nice? But, you know, we take what we get, and then we have scheduled daytime naps, which this is very frustrating because if I had a dollar for every time someone told me, oh, it must be nice to have to take a scheduled nap. And you're like, look, Jim, sorry for the gyms out there. It is not fun to be shopping or having a girl's day or spending a holiday with your family. And then to be like, oh, we're walking around New York, but oh, it's 3 p.m. time for my scheduled daytime nap. Like, 
said no one ever, right? But life with narcolepsy has been, you know, it's been a good life despite the symptoms that I have to deal with. And you know, it taught me a lot. I've graduated and I met a lot of people along the way that share very common, like I've built so much empathy for other individuals and what they're going through because of my own experiences with what I'm dealing with. And I feel like I'm able to get so much closer to people because I understand their struggles in a way that I never would have been able to if I didn't go through what I went through. Um, I got engaged last November, or I guess the November before last November, and then I got married recently to a very supportive guy who actually finds my narcolepsy very interesting. And I am an aunt and just a lot of good things that I really um, am proud of. I'm in the process right now of studying for my GRE so I can go to grad school and eventually be a speech language pathologist. And you know, the route has taken me a lot longer than what like the ideal route would have taken anybody else. But I feel like I'm a way stronger person because I've had to persevere through all of that. And, you know, I may have to work 10 times harder, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it with a smile on my face. And that's just the way it is. And the future is really bright. So I actually give presentations. I've given a few, um, one at McGovern Medical School and then one more recently at Midwestern. And that's here in Illinois. And it's just, I've been a Rising Voices of Narcolepsy speaker for, I guess, over a year, I guess two years. Has it been that long? And I just can't tell you, one of the very first things that I wanted to do once I realized I had narcolepsy, I was like, I should... I should do something. I should like tell people about it. And I would like do it, but people wouldn't ask me to hear about it. I would just like regurgitate everything I learned about it. And so Rising Voices program gave me um, a means to really lay out my story and make it more palpable. And it's been such a blessing to be able to explain to people my story without just drowning them in all this information and this personality. Um, there's an eight to 15 year average between symptoms and diagnosis. And I just got to say that is ridiculous. Think about being eight years old and then having to wait 15 years for a diagnosis. Or it, when you're 10, if you start experiencing symptoms at 10 years old, and you have to wait 15 years for a diagnosis, you're gonna be 25, you're already graduated, that's past the years of undergrad, traditional years. I mean, that completely changes someone's life. And under 50% of people are currently diagnosed. So these statistics are just insane if you ask me. The one thing that I wanna, really get at with this message is that it is so important to look at children and really acknowledge if they're having symptoms because 
it can be so detrimental for a child to wait this long for a diagnosis. It completely changes the span of your life. And another thing I want to get at for medical professionals, and I say this when I give my talks, is really listen to your patient. Not every case is going to be a zebra. We know that. But there are zebras out there. And if you don't listen to your patient, you'll never be able to help them. And in my case, a medical professional didn't listen to me for years. And I could have been diagnosed earlier. And it's just, it's so, so important to have empathy with your patients and really understand their frustrations as well. So thank you, everybody. Hey, Brittany. Oh, so great to hear everything. I got to hear some new stuff I hadn't heard too. So um, I was working on it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I'm going to start by asking you a few of my own questions. Okay. I want to start with the decision to go. So you got your cosmetology degree and it took longer. Mm -hmm. um, and you had already started, you got your narcolepsy diagnosed at 19. So you were diagnosed and you, um, but then you decided to go back to get an undergrad degree. How did you end up making that decision to go back and get your undergrad degree? Like, cause I, I imagine that like any situation you're in, you kind of get used to your norm, you know, and people around you kind of adapt to your norm. And so how did you then find the confidence like within you or did someone else like support you in making that decision to go back and get your undergrad? I actually, I was working in a salon for a little while for, I think it was five months. I was being a salon assistant and I started to realize that one, being on my feet all the time in that kind of situation wasn't working with my symptoms at the time. My cataplexy was still pretty intense and it was, it was factors like that. But then it was also realizing like, wait a minute maybe this isn't really what I even wanted to do in the first place, but I did it because it was all I thought maybe I could do at the time because of my circumstances. So once I realized like my symptoms weren't permitting me to do my best in this role, I was like, well, why don't I dabble into other roles? Like the floor is mine. Like I could do anything I wanted to right now, you know? So once my medication started helping and things started leveling out, I was like, I could do anything. So I think it was just that excitement of like, wow, like put it to the test. What can I do next? You know? And how did you get um, passionate about speech pathology? So for that, it was that I, I guess I should have shared. I... And when I was talking about being able to connect with people on a different level because of my experience and what I've gone through, I actually felt a really strong connection to adults on the autism spectrum because of what they had gone through and like what they go through constantly and just the misunderstanding and the misinterpretation of their symptoms and what their day-to-day -day lives are like. And because of that, I felt very passionate about pursuing speech-language pathology and being able to use my experience to help them live out their lives in a way that made sense to them and felt good for them, you know, and to know that they're not alone, like I felt for a majority of the years. I also, I think there was like a brief time when I was a kid where I saw speech-language pathologists 
And so that's probably what sparked it. But then it was the emotional connection that I really took off with. That is so cool. Well, I can't wait to continue to see you succeed in that area. And you'll have to come back and tell us more. Yes. Wish me yep. luck on my GRE. <laughs> When's the GRE? Next fall. So I have plenty of time to study. God wow. will. <laughs> you moved recently to Chicago from Texas. Yes. And you got married. That's a lot of change. So how has it been adjusting to Chicago as far as, you know, like your life with narcolepsy, as far as, you know, driving or doctors or social life or how's all that gone? You know, the finding a new doctor has been interesting. I had a good uh, bond, I guess, with my doctor back in Houston, because he's the one who changed my life. Like he diagnosed me, my world flipped upside down or right side up, I guess, um, once he diagnosed me. And so it was really hard being like, oh, no, I have to get a new doctor. Like, what if they are not good? So I found one doctor and like, I like him, but his staff, I actually had to teach them how to go through the insurance process of like getting my um, nighttime medication, my Zyrum to me. And I was like, this isn't right. Like I shouldn't have to tell them how to order my medication. That's so weird. So I, I'm pretty sure I was the only person with narcolepsy that they were seeing maybe. So I'm in the process of actually finding a new doctor. And there are lots of awesome specialists here because we have Northwestern up here, Western University. So I'm on the waiting list for a neurologist. So I'm really excited about that. And he's published and all of that. So I think he'll, I'll be in good hands. Um, As far as like my social life and stuff, it's, I'm, I'm an introvert with extrovert qualities. And so I've been fine in that area because I'll stay at home all day until like I'm forced to go out, but then I'm fine. So, but I do miss my family and friends, of course, but it's nice to be in a different situation where I, I see that I, the people, my stigma is gone from back home up here. And that's nice. Like people don't know me as the girl who never showed up to high school. (laughs) It's really interesting how that can really change. Like you can have a whole new identity. Oh yeah. It's like taking a mask off or something. It's really weird. Wow. It's interesting. Yeah. And then the last question I was going to ask you, how has it been presenting to medical professionals? Have you gotten, or anyone, any of your audiences, because you've actually given a lot of presentations. Have you gotten any good, now without anyone like saying anyone's name or anything, but like, have anyone asked you some questions that made you realize that maybe you made some bells go off in people's heads or any neat experiences? I think the biggest thing is realizing how many people in medical school who have, they had no idea what cataplexy is. So many people, I mean, almost, there's probably been uh, less than a handful of people who knew what it was. And that to me is just mind blowing. I think, and seeing, cause my husband is in medical school and seeing the board's questions they get and things like that. He, every time he comes across a narcolepsy one, he's like, read it, is it accurate? And it's like, it's okay. But it's just really interesting. They don't learn about it. They had one single slide and he showed it to me and it was like, oh, narcolepsy is where you're really tired. And then it's like, next. (laughs) So it's just, everyone says, 
after my presentations, probably the biggest take is that they're like, wow, we had no idea any of these other symptoms existed. So that's, I really try to hit home on that. And just in my like day-to-day life, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling this way. And someone blows it off and they're like, oh, I, I'm tired a lot. I'm like, yeah, but do you have cataplexy? <laughs> like, what's that? <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And then I've had uh, someone ask actually about insurance before. And like, and that to me was like probably the most I crazy question. Cause like, how do you even think to ask that first of all, but second of all, the insurance for the medications we take are just crazy. Like if you don't have a benefit, I think my, I'm just going to be really transparent here. You pay like $17,000 out of pocket for Zyrum if you don't have like insurance or if you don't like full price would be like $99,000 a year. So yeah, there's a lot of coverage and access issues, but no one actually pays that in the U S exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that, um, they make sure that people get access to the treatment that they need. Absolutely. There's the benefit programs, which are awesome. And so I told people about that. Um, yeah. And it's yeah, just coverage and access in the yeah. U.S. is a bigger issue beyond narcolepsy. So that's why we don't talk about it too much in our presentations because it's a problem that extends way beyond narcolepsy, and we can see it right now in our world with um, COVID nineteen. Exactly know? with um, everything. So, but we do work on those issues on an advocacy side to make sure that people have as much coverage and access as possible. Um, but yeah, that's it is an, it's a part of our lives too. I mean, just dealing like what you said with dealing with your new doctor and the the whole process of juggling it all is the hard yeah. part. But it is possible, and it's you know we're I'd like I said in the presentation we'll take what we can get. So like <laughs> the medications have been life changing, and like I'm so thankful for the fact that like we have anything to help us right now. Progress is always, of course welcomed and they're working on things, but. Uh, I have a question. How do you manage household responsibilities with your husband? Oh, this is a good question. So he actually loves cooking. And I'm like, that's why I married him. Probably it's probably like the biggest reason because I will not, I, I, if it were up to me, I would eat ramen every single day happily and but he like forces me to eat real food so he'll make stuff and I usually do the dishes but he knows like and y'all know it can be really hard with narcolepsy to do household chores and things like that like as often as maybe we feel like we should I think a lot of that is us just beating ourselves up actually but I do. I get down on myself if there are dishes in the sink and I'm like, oh, he cooked like I should be doing the dishes and stuff. But he helps out for sure. I'm probably don't tell him this, but I'm probably cleaner than he is. (laughs) So my normal like day to day cleanliness, like as far as like dishes and things like that. So if he feels like he has to like do them, I'm like, that's fine. Like he's he's pretty good about it. But he doesn't freak out like if I don't, if the laundry is all over the floor for a couple of days, he's like, it's okay, we'll get around to it, you know, so. Oh, good. He's very empathetic. He, and since he's in medical school, he has a better understanding and like empathy towards like what I'm going through than like, I couldn't have married someone who didn't understand, I think. 
I think that's really hard for a lot of people to have a significant other that maybe doesn't understand as well. And I can't imagine that just, I mean, it's really, really hard. I know I have that with my family, but yeah, that that's just hard for anybody. Yeah. Well, that is good. We are glad that he is supportive. And, um, and I think that maybe he'll even be a better doctor because of knowing what it's like to be with someone with a chronic illness. So I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Well, I think with that, we will go ahead and say thank you again, Brittany, for sharing your story tonight. And if anyone is in the Chicago area and would like to have Brittany come speak at your school or your workplace or you know, something like that, please, you can email Project Sleep and we can put you in touch with Brittany to do that because she gives great presentations, as you can tell. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.